I'm be seated at this time. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus. Um, I, I love hearing us as the church gathering together and singing those words, singing stuff like, there's no shadow you won't light up. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie that you won't uh, continue to let happen. The pursuit of the Lord for his people. And that's exactly what Romans is talking about. You know, I'm so grateful to be standing before you on Father's Day to preach through Romans. When we, when we were meeting together talking about what was the, the preaching calendar going to look like and we decided to go with the series on Romans, I was so excited because for me, in the moments of doubt, the, the moments of worry, the moments of angst, Romans is a book that I go to and cling to. By far one of my favorite books in the Bible because in that we see the gospel clearly. We see our identity and who Jesus has created us to be. We see that we have power over sin because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's a book that I cling to that I love. And so to be able to teach a little bit of that this morning, I'm just extremely excited about that. Um, and you know, one, one of the most important things I think that you can do in crafting a sermon is first you've got to come up with a, a good title, right? It's got to be short, it's got to be pithy, it's got to be rememberable. And so for me this morning, the, the, the most appropriate title that I could come up with was Romans chapter 6. Um, and so I think you'll be able to remember that. Uh, I actually did write out one, but it was not short and memorable. But it, it is this, freedom from the power of sin how to alleviate a distorted view of sin through the power of the gospel. And I knew there was no way you remember that. So you can just leave saying it was chapter, Romans chapter 6. Um, but as we move into kind of the last bit of 5 in, the, in all of chapter 6 this morning, we're going to see Paul addressing some issues. First, he's going to speak to our identity in Christ. And let me tell you, as we, as we look at this part of the scripture, if we don't understand that, everything else we look at this morning will kind of just not make sense and it, it won't matter if we don't understand who we are in Jesus Christ and what he has made us to be. And so as I was reflecting on how do we, what was kind of the pulse of the people as, as Paul is speaking to the Jews and as he's addressing these issues, he's kind of talking about two different mindsets when it comes to a view of sin. Um, and, and so as I thought about that, I was quickly reminded of a, a mission trip that I led for many years. So I was a college pastor for about nine years. And one of, my, one of the hardest, most transformative uh, but greatest mission trips that I ever led our students on was something called Beach Reach at South Padre Island. Is anybody familiar with that organization at all? All right, Amy, I, that makes sense that you would be, yes. Um, an incredible thing. Let, let me kind of fill you in on what that is, okay? So Beach Reach is um, South Padre Island, spring break, 50,000 plus college students descend on a 10 square mile island with all of their parents' money and none of their parents' authority and they spend seven days living on the island. And I'll tell you, it is one of the darkest, craziest atmospheres that I've ever been immersed in. Man, you see people reaching for all sorts of things and looking so empty and so distraught and so what we do is, at this point, there's a thousand plus college Christian students that descend on the island as well. And, and we go with the purpose of serving those people. And so in the mornings, they serve free breakfast. And the goal is, you eat like a hundred pancakes, because you get in line with somebody, you eat a pancake with them, and you tell them about Jesus. So you're just eating pancakes all morning. But, but the kind of the bread and butter of this mission trip is this. They take, all these students bring their, their church's vehicles and vans, 
And the island knows, like the non-believers on this island know, hey, there's a free Uber service called these Christians that do beach reach or whatever. And you call this hotline and they'll come pick you up and give you a free ride anywhere on the island. And to get like one mile on the island that week takes 30 minutes to an hour. I mean, it is just insane the amount of people and the things that are going on. And so the goal is this. I, I get my van. I go pick you up. I've got six or seven of my own college students sitting dispersed throughout the van and then as you get on you have to sit by one of my students I'll take you for an hour somewhere but what they're going to do is try to build a relationship with you in the next 30 minutes for the purpose of sharing the gospel it's incredible I mean literally saw the power of the gospel transform hearts and minds instantly where people were never the same Uh, I could give testimony all day long of of just some of the amazing things that the Lord did. But there's two stories specifically that remind me of what we're going to be looking at today. And one was it was the middle of the day. So nighttime is a crazy time, but it's crazy during the day. We got a call to go pick up two uh, students. So they come in. They were of Indian nationality, devout Muslims, UT graduate uh, engineers. These dudes were smart, okay. And so they sit in the seat directly behind me. And all my, all my college students are like, you got this one, Matt. You just carry, you, you do that one. And so we begin to talk. And an hour drive to get to the other side of the beach. And these guys had had no idea how crazy this was going to be. They just came with some friends. But they were extremely faithful to their religion. And so they knew that as we're chilling on the beach, it's midday. We've got to get back and we've got to do our midday prayer. And so they begin to talk through that. I said, okay, so you're really faithful to the five pillars. You try to keep those as, as best as you can. They were like, absolutely. Man, we try not to miss a prayer. We, we do everything required. And I said, well, that's good. I mean, I applaud you for your faith and uh, your perseverance to do that. And I said, let me ask you this. When you die, and are you going to get to, because you've been doing so well, do you get to go to heaven or paradise or whatever it is that you would call the afterlife? And they said, man, we have no idea. We're just trying really hard. Only, only Allah knows whether or not we'll get in. So we just spend our whole life trying to keep these rules as best we can. And we just hope that in the end it was good enough. And man, in that moment, I, I rejoiced in my soul for our faith. That Jesus came and did everything required for us to receive righteousness, to, to enter into the presence of God. That it, doesn't, it wasn't a result of our works or what we could accomplish, but the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I share that with him. And I, and I said, man, let me ask you this. That, that seems to be incredibly weighty. That you're going to spend your entire life trying to keep this set of rules, hoping to appease God. And in the end, you have no idea. They said, it is. We try not to think about that part. Uh, we just try to do our best. And I was like, man, that's a lot for eternity. Share the gospel. And I said, what do you think about that? That it, it rests solely on the finished work of Jesus. And here's what they said. They said, if, if that was true, they said that would be incredibly powerful. And I thought to myself, man, if you only knew that it was truth, that there's freedom and hope in that. And what you had were, were guys that were trying to keep the law, much like these Jews that we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 6. But there was one more type of student. And unfortunately that was the, the average American Christian kid that was at Beach Reach. And they would get on our bus. And they had been partaking in everything that, had to be, that was going on that week without a doubt. Obviously there were substances happening. And they're loud and we're sharing the gospel. And they're like, whoa, whoa, no man. I, I grew up in church. And I'd be like, okay. So you think you're a Christian? Oh, absolutely. I'm a Christian. I said, well, what do you feel like 
the Lord, how do you feel like he views just what's going on and kind of what you're partaking in this week? Dude, he's God's love. I'm forgiven. Like, I, he doesn't care what I'm doing right now. I'm forgiven. I, I promise I had that, that talk way more than the devout Muslim that's trying to keep the rules. And you had two polar opposites of people that still had a distorted view of sin, that were still bound in slavery, right? One was trying to keep the law. The other was living in license, going the law doesn't sin all the more, right? I'm forgiven. And that's exactly where we find Paul as we look at the end of chapter 5. And here's what I'm going to guess this morning. If you're anything like me, I, I bet we could relate with one of those two scenarios a lot more than we would like to let on to. And so with that in mind, I want to jump into chapter 5, starting in verse 18. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. Now, this is important to stop right here and underline the word justification. I'm so thankful that Ron gave us kind of like the, the small, easy definitions to remember as we started in Romans. Uh, his definition of justification was this. Mercy, grace, and righteousness of God given to you. Now, that's incredible, right? Kind of, kind of the Greek, more weightier definition would be the act of God declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. Now, this is, is pivotal in understanding it, like Paul's about to move into how you can have freedom over sin. But he says, we, we can't even begin to talk about freedom over sin until you understand who you are in Jesus. That he has made you right. That you are in right standing. That you have been justified. And he continues on in verse 19. So he says this, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The, the weighty theological term of what this is talking about is imputed righteousness. Imputed, if you look up the definition, is kind of the idea that, that God has ascribed or assigned to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 would say that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the identity of the believer the moment that you place your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, two things happen. God says, you are now made right. I declare you justified, and I have declared you righteous. It's beautiful. In fact, if you look, at, we'll get into chapter 6 in a, in a minute, and Paul kind of likens it to being baptized into the death of Jesus, raised in the resurrection of Jesus. And this isn't a, necessarily a, a talking about water baptism. It's kind of the, the word picture uh, that... In biblical times, that you would have like a, a white linen. And, and so to color that linen, you would have to dye that linen or baptize that linen into some type of, of ink. Or, uh, and, and so what they would do is they would take these white linens and they would submerge it into the ink. And that would, that would just penetrate into all the fibers of that linen. As you pulled it out, it, it, it's a new color. And you can't take the red out, right? It can't become white again. It's been transformed into a new thing. And that's, that's the picture of imputed righteousness, that Jesus is perfect in our stead. And so what he does is as we're baptized into his death and raised in likeness with him, Jesus has placed his righteousness over us as the believer. And now God, when he sees us, sees righteousness. We are declared justified and made righteous. This is the identity of the believer. 
And if we miss that, you'll be a lot like me. My, my default position, really, if I forget that, is to look a lot like the UT graduates. Because what we do is, is we know we can't keep the entire law. And, and so for some of us, we decide we'll make up our own law, right? And we'll try to keep our own set of rules. And so, you know, the, the, the biblical Bible Christian laws that we make for ourselves is like, well, you better go to church. Now it is 2018. We're busy. So just three times a, a month, you're killing it, right? You need to read your Bible. And let's be honest, Saturday's busy. Sunday, you're here. You're getting the word now. You don't have to read then. So Monday through Friday, if I can do that, that'll make God happy. Right, if I give a little bit, maybe not sacrificially, but if I just give some, and we have you just fill in the blank, and we make this this list of rules, and we say, if I follow this, surely that will keep God happy with me. And man, what we have done is now walked into self righteousness. We have minimized the penalty of sin, just like the UT guys. They minimize the penalty of sin. God says that the the wages of sin is death, like death and hell is the penalty of sin. And there is no amount of good works, there's no amount of keeping the rules that can ever suffice our sin. And so Paul knows, like he's talking to these people and he knows in their mind, this is radical stuff for the, for the Jews. They've been told their whole life, here's a long list of rules and if you can do your best to keep these, maybe you can satisfy God. Maybe you can be justified so that he will be pleased with you. And now they're hearing Paul go, it's by faith alone and Christ alone. And they go, how can that be? Like, how can, it, how can we just accept Jesus and, and by faith walk and be his and surrender our life to him? And then all of a sudden we're made right? It doesn't make sense. What about the law? And so he addresses that. Starting in verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, as I was preparing for this, this is basic stuff, the law. Uh, known about it, known what it was for for a long time. But it, I had one of those, like, light bulb moments that just kind of pushes you into instant worship. Because I've always been a little uh, perplexed by that, that particular phraseology, right? The, the, how, he's, how he's laid out verse 20. The law was given so that sin would increase. I thought, that's, that's just a weird way to say that, right? God gave the law so that sin would increase. I thought he didn't like sin. So what was the purpose of the law? Why, why would that increase sin? And here's what I, I came to realize. And it's so basic, and yet I'm like, oh my gosh, God, you are so good. I believe that the law was given, given because he is a relentless God that pursues us. We sing reckless love, right? It's not that God is reckless. It's that in view of the world, like that, that love that he has shown us is so radical, seems so reckless to leave the one, to leave the 99 after the one. And that, that is who our God is. He is relentlessly pursuing his creation, providing a way for us to be reconciled through him, through grace. Because here's the deal, right? We're all image bearers of Christ, the Imago Dei. So intrinsically, all humanity has a, a little bit of a moral code within our hearts, but sin came in and distorted that. And here's what I believe. I believe if God would not have given a heavy, lofty, weighty law of morality that showed who he is, what he was about, what holiness looked like, something that we could never even achieve on our own, I, I believe that wasn't given to us. If we were left to go, all right, guys, you, you guys figure out, are you sinners or not? Do you need a savior? I think we left to our own 
uh, means we would justify all sin. And, it, and it's, it's playing out, right? We live in what's called a postmodern world right now. And what you have is people saying there's, there's no absolute truth, right? And so they say, in fact, there's no absolute truth. There's actually no morality. Evil and, and, and goodness don't exist, right? We think something is good because this is what postmodern thinking would be. We think something is good because the culture has told us that. So the things that we think are good is because someone taught us that. If they would have taught us that that same thing was evil, then we would think it was bad. So there's really no such thing as good and evil. There's no morality. It's just what culture defines it as. Like we've done that, right? Left to our own means. And I believe this. I believe we all feel a little bit of the weight and the guilt of shame. Even people that have nothing to do with the Lord feel that. So what's the easiest way to escape that? Well, there's no such thing as evil. The things I'm doing aren't wrong. And so God goes, man, if I leave you to yourselves, you will never see your need for a Savior. So he lays on us one of the most weighty things that could possibly be put on us. And it sifts us down to the dust. As we look at his holiness, his standard, and realize our sin, our sin increases. Right? All of a sudden what we thought, we were like, I'm a pretty good person. You're like, oh my gosh, my sin has been elevated. I am far more wicked, far more evil than I would have ever thought in my entire mind. And, and we're like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. Like when we stand before God and his moral law and his, his holiness and who he is is placed before us, it crushes us into the dirt. And I believe he did that because of his great love for us. Because as we're laid bare in the dust and we realize we have nothing to give, nothing to offer, we say, woe is me, I, I, I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. And we look to Jesus and then you, I love the end of this sentence. The law came that we would, our, our trespasses, our sin would increase, why? So that grace would abound all the more. As we are laid low in the dirt and we look towards a Savior, we see Jesus saying, yes, your sin is greater than you would ever give yourself credit for, but my grace is sufficient. Grace abounds all the more. Walk away from the weight of slavery, of sin, and follow me. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is our identity in Christ. And can I tell you, I think it would do us justice to, to look into our heart and say, are we, are we like the Jews? Are we like the UT uh, Muslims more than we would give ourselves credit for? And here's how you know, like that, that list of rules we were talking about that maybe you've made for yourself, you fill in the blank of what it is. Here's how you know if you're living in that. If your view of God of you hinges on whether or not you keep those certain set of rules, then you're walking in this. Self-righteousness. It's actually sin. Like to try to keep the rules to, to please God is sinful. Jesus is speaking to the disciples right before his ascension. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. And here's what I believe. I believe some of us, as we try to keep our rules, if we've done it well, we feel like, yes, I can go before the Lord. I'm doing pretty good. God, you're pretty proud of me, aren't you? 
I read my Bible six times this week. Surely you're pleased with me. Surely you love me more. But the moment we miss some time with the Lord or the moment sin enters in, we feel so guilty, so shameful. And there is a godly guilt that that leads us to repentance, the Bible says. But I'll tell you this, guilt and shame that removes you from the presence of the Lord is not of God. And so for some of us that are trying to keep the rules, as we fail in those areas, we remove ourselves from the presence of God and we go, I need to wait till the guilt and shame passes so that I can enter back into the presence of God. And I'm telling you, that is sinful and it's burdensome and it's a heavy load. It's no more heavier to carry than the Muslim that says, I've got to keep all these rules and maybe I'll get in. Because what you've done is says, yeah, I believe that Jesus was sufficient to save me, but I better keep myself saved. And Paul's going, no, like God has come to give you freedom from all of that. Know that I've declared you right. You are justified and I've made you righteous. So now don't, don't try to keep the rules to earn my favor. You begin to live in holiness and pursue me because I have given you righteousness. It's a response to what he has done. And I'm telling you, just as I confess, if I don't keep my mind on the Lord, that's the direction of my heart. And it's weighty and burdensome and it's sinful. Because what we have done is we have minimized the penalty of sin. And so he moves on to chapter 6. And we're going to read some bulk uh, sections of scripture here. So stay with me. But he, it, it makes sense, right? If you're telling these Jews, you're going, hey, you're, you're justified. You're made righteous. It's not about keeping the rules. Their response was, well, then do you just get to do whatever you want? Do you just sin all the more? Are you the college kid on the back of the bus that's going, I grew up in church. God doesn't care what I do. I do. He, he's love. And so Paul responds to that. And I believe this is, this is the sin of minimizing the offense in the effect of sin is what we're about to see, right? And, and I, I love what Ron said when we started Romans. He kind of placed out the three parts of our Christian walk, right? When we become a Christian is our justification, and that's being freed from the penalty of sin. That's what we just talked about. That's what Paul has just said in chapter 5. And now he moves to our sanctification, kind of that in-between time, and that's where we are freed from the power of sin, and so Paul goes, do you want to be free from the power of sin? First, you've got to be freed from the penalty of sin. You have to understand. Now let's move on to these people that have minimized the offense and the effect of sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Again, this isn't the water baptism. That's that idea of imputed righteousness. We've been given the means to overcome sin. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you underline your Bible, it's a good place to underline. The purpose of this is that you might walk in newness of life. That you, your joy may be complete in who God is by honoring him and walking in holiness. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you underline great Great one to underline. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also be raised, live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. Amen. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. This is huge. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, huge. For for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul responds. So what should we do then? If, if you're telling me that, that grace abounds all the more as our sin increases, there was literally people in this time saying, okay, well then let's just sin more to boast more in the grace of, of Jesus. And Paul's going, that is absolutely idiotic. You have died to sin. You are a new creation. You, what, what you are doing is you are, you are slowly distorting your view of sin and forgetting the offense and the effect of sin. There is new life and joy to be had. But here's the question for you. And I, verse 12 and verse 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Now here's my question for you, right? If we're freed from the power of sin, my question for you is to be honest with yourself and say, do you feel as though you're walking in in, in a way that sin does not have dominion over you? That it is not forcing you to obey its passions. I would, I, would, I would guess that some of us are even more than we would like to admit would say, I still feel enslaved and trapped in sin even though I am a believer. Verse 1 talks about shall we continue in sin. The, the Greek word of that has, has the connotation of, of abiding in that sin or even like a, a habitual sin, right? Like it's something that we are, we are wrestling with that we can't get free from. It just continues even though we know it's an, a, a, a sinful and we don't want to do it. It just it holds us and binds us. And God goes, man, I've sent Jesus Christ that you might have freedom from that. But in order to do that, first, you've got to quit distorting your view of sin. You have lowered the offense and you have lowered the effect in your mind and you don't realize the danger that you're in. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer for all of us then is that we begin to look at what, what does the Bible say about sin? What is a biblical perspective of sin? And then how do we practically get out of it, right? Like, let's be honest. There's probably some of us in addiction in this room. There's some of us just wrestling and tormented by something that will not let hold of us. And Jesus has spoken over us that you are free from that. So how do we, how do we harness that? First, I believe we've got to see sin for what it is. And there's, I think it can be whittled down to three simple statements of what biblical sin looks like. And one is this. All sin carries with it both physical and spiritual death. Right, the wages of sin is death. Two, sin is a great offense against our great God. Romans 2, we looked at this a little bit. 2, 4, um, God's kindness, his forbearance, his long-suffering for sin is so that we might be led to repentance. 
I believe some of us think, well, all this sin is happening in the world. Where is God? If it's such an offense, if he's so upset with it, where is he at? And the Bible says, man, he is just pouring out his forbearance, his long suffering, because there is going to be a day where all sin will be answered for. Jesus has bore the sin of the Christians on himself, but there's going to be a day that those that don't know Jesus will, will answer for their sin. It is a great offense against God. And lastly, Sin will still kill and destroy the abundant life and joy that Christ has given you. Like, like God has wired us to know him. And as we know him and we make him known and he is glorified, we receive abundant life. Like there is nothing else that is going to satisfy your soul. All, all sin is this, right? All we've done is we've said, Jesus is not better. I love that we sang that song. Jesus in that moment is not better. Instead, X, Y, or Z is what I'm going to put as the king of my heart because I think this is what's going to satisfy me and what my soul needs. And in the end, it will still kill and destroy your abundant life. It will lead to death, and it is an offense against God. And I love, I love the best picture of this, <laughs> of sin that I've ever seen uh, talked about was Matt Chandler. And he likened it to this. He likened to the, all these people that will bring in like apex predators and domesticate them to live in their home. And I Googled this. I was like, let me see, like, are there news articles? And it's just like you can scroll for days of just people that have domesticated apex predators, put them in their 800-square-foot apartment with them. And eventually these, these lions and tigers and bears, oh, lions, tigers, bears, oh, my, uh, all these things <laughs> that people are putting as pets in their apartment complex get big enough and one day eat them. And people are like, what happened? This tiger was so nice. That tiger is an apex predator that has been waiting to be big enough to eat you. That's what it's been doing the entire time it was in your apartment. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But what you get are people going, I think somehow I can, I can I'm not going to put this thing to death. I, I, I'm going I'm to try to monitor it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have lordship over it. I'm going to modify its behavior so it doesn't rule me. And in the end, you can't, right? That, a lion was created to, to do one thing. That's get hungry and eat stuff. And you were what it saw when it was hungry. And sin is the same way, right? Some of us, we don't realize that the Bible calls us to mortify our sin, like put it to death because it is dangerous, and some of us bring it into our homes and we say, I, I, can, I can own you, sin. I can, I can make you do what I want. I'm not going to put you to death because I need you when I need you. But I, I'm going to control you. And in the end, that sin is waiting to kill you. If you do not kill your sin, it will kill you. The Bible speaks to that truth. And so for some of us, we've got to open our eyes to the fact that the offense of our sin is great and the effect of our sin is great. And there's a price to be paid to try to domesticate it. And so in this moment we go, well then, yeah, I see that. So how do I do that? Like how do I, how do I get free from this? And this is going to sound like Sunday school answers, but in the end, you've heard this your whole life because it's been truth your whole life. And it, and it starts with this, one, what we've talked about, knowing your identity in Jesus, that, that God has already made you free, right? It's not that sin might not have dominion over you, that you don't have to maybe obey. It's less like Jesus has proclaimed you are free from sin because of me. So it begins by knowing that. 
And then it's as simple, as, simple yet as hard because what's interesting to me is the conversations that I have with people in my own heart too. I know it's simple, yet it's so hard to live out. Is that we begin to petition and pray, God, would you remove this from me? And we couple that with the word of God. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe, believe this, that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us is activated by the word of God. Like when those two come together, there's something that's activated in us that power pulls forth from our life. And so it starts with you begin to plead and petition with the Lord, and then you renew your mind, right? We said the reason you're choosing these things in the first place is because for whatever reason you've believed the lie that that will satisfy your soul, that somehow it is better than Jesus. And left to our own, we will forget that Jesus is better. And we'll come sing it on a Sunday morning and we'll be reminded for a day or two and by Wednesday you will forget that Jesus is better. I will forget that Jesus is better without the word of God sifting our hearts. And so as we pray and we petition and we, we actively seek the Lord, it begins to give us power and freedom over sin. But I'll tell you this, there's one more avenue in which God says this is the way to have freedom from sin. If you don't want to obey its passions, if you don't want to be enslaved to it, I've given you the church. I've given you community. And that's a scary one. That is one that all of us are a little bit scared of, right? What does it look like then if I share and bear my soul before other people? But, it, but James says this, confess your sins one another so that you may be healed. I love Tuesdays. Tuesdays at noon, every week, I meet with Brandon Graham, our men's pastor. And we sit down for an hour and we just go, all right, let's go. And from the smallest sin to the greatest sin in our life, we confess that to one another. Why? Because I know the effects of sin. I know the wickedness of my heart. I want to live to honor God and I don't want sin to be domesticated so that one day it mauls me to death. And so I bring it to life. I confess that. I repent of that. I move from that so that joy might be had and God might be glorified. But that's scary, right? Somehow in our mind we look in this room and we think some people have it together better than others. But if we'll remember as we stand before the law and the holiness of God, we are all laid in the ground. We are all but dust, as Will said this morning. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your race or ethnicity. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for forever or for a day. We are laid bare before the Lord. Every single person in this room is on an even playing field when it comes to sin. And that should free us up. Why? Because grace abounds all the more. We have this opportunity as the church to come and to to let people see inside of our hearts that we we don't have it together. And in that there is freedom. I believe the devil's greatest weapon against overcoming sin is that he isolates us. He places us in a place where we believe that we're the only one and that there's no way out. And we have no accountability we're not seeking after God because we feel unrighteous so we can't go in his presence because we don't understand justification and we live a life neutralized for the gospel. And the life that he desires for us has been strangled out by sin and by lies. And Jesus has come to give us freedom from that. And so the question for us this morning is this. Do you relate with one of these two people? Like have you minimized the penalty of sin? 
If somehow in your mind you think that if you keep some rules, that that will appease God, that is sinful and it's weighty. And Jesus says, your sin is greater than you believe, but grace abounds all the more. Turn to me and find freedom. Or maybe you've just said, you know what? I like having a tiger in my house and it's waiting to destroy you. Jesus says, yes, that is a great offense against a great God. And that will still kill and destroy your life. But take heart, I've given you power to overcome sin. My grace abounds for you. Like there's freedom to be had. That's the glory of the gospel, is that he loves us and he's given us hope and freedom. And so this morning, we would be amiss to not let the Lord do that in us. To sift out the things that we're, we're still minimizing our sin and not elevating Jesus. Like, take heart. We are all more wicked than we'd ever give ourselves credit for, but his grace abounds. And maybe for someone in this room, for the first time, you're realizing, man, my sin is a great offense against God, and I am separated from him. And you feel that moment of being laid in the dust, and you say, I need a savior. Romans 6.23 ends, right? This, this chapter ends with this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's, he's yelling to us with the glory of the cross, my grace abounds. And so maybe for the first time ever, it's, it's for you to surrender your life to Jesus and say, I'm, I'm in. I repent of my sin and I'm following you the rest of my days because this is burdensome and it's heavy. But here's what I know for each of us this morning. Regardless if it's self-righteousness or it's license, it's a distorted view of sin, the penalty of sin or the distorted view of uh, sin's offense and the effect. In the end, there's freedom for you and I. But God's not gonna force that on you. We have to petition that our sin would be bitter so that Jesus would be sweet. And so I'm gonna pray for us that we would, we would respond It's a heavy message, I know, but the greatness of it is this. Grace abounds all the more. Like you are loved and fully known this morning. There's nothing hidden this morning. And God, even though he knows our heart, desires communion with us. And he's provided a way through Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So respond, walk in freedom. Whatever that looks like during this moment, do that. Because he loves us. And it's always been about a relentless pursuit of his creation that we could be redeemed and give him glory. So let me pray. So God, we are so thankful that you gave us a moral code that we could never keep. It lays us bare before you as a holy God so that we would reach up and see our need for Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, you took on our sin, you defeated death and the grave, and you rose, and you offer hope and life and forgiveness of sin to us. But not even that, God, you, you offer power over sin to us. God, would we not be a people that live enslaved to sin? Would we seek you? Would we confess? Would we repent? Would we walk in community? 
Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can walk out of this as believers with our head held high in confidence in who we are because you have declared us righteous and you have declared us justified. So our only response is worship, humility, and boasting in Jesus alone. So have your way in these last few moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.